Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Radiotherapy for the first our first show for 2024, which is pretty exciting. Uh, as always, thank you, huge thanks to the magnificent marinologists for their last hour of aquatic awesomeness, and and also a massive, massive thanks to the chickenologists, to Fiona Scott Norman, Jessamy Miller, who kept this Radiotherapy hour clucking along over the Christmas New Year period. They do it. It's really delightful listening. I love the chickeny stuff. Uh, but today, I'm delighted to welcome back to the Triple R Studios two of our regular co-hosts, starting with scientist, psychotherapist, all-round intellectual giant, the wonderful Prudence, dear. Good Prudence. morning, Nick. And I miss those chickens. I've just got some chickens now. I'm becoming a chickenologist. Yeah. You've got chickens? Yeah, I've got, got four hens. I just got them before Christmas. And, and so I guess you've been listening avidly oh, to the, I, And anything, I'm devouring anything except the actual chickens. I've given up eating chicken too. Oh, right, but you do eat the eggs, I'm guessing? Yes, fresh yeah. eggs every yeah, day. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and um, tell us, who have you got coming up in the show today? Right, yeah, we're going to have a chat with a, a filmmaker who comes from Ballarat. It's uh, Matt Norman. And Matt uh, has been making a film and uh, producing it and script writing it quite um, quite a talented person, um, but it's on the t- subtopic of teen suicide. So it's a it's a tragic story. It's a real story, but it's not a documentary. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking about that and why make the film and what it's going to achieve. So yeah, yeah. So that'll be coming up in around about five ten minutes time. Yeah. Um, and obviously an important question, and I think is it a really really important topic. But there may be people who find this confronting. So um, for sure, if they warning. need to skip out for fifteen minutes. That's fine. But we're not going to talk graphic details. We're not going to go into anything deeply. It's more about what the film is about. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to that one. And sitting alongside Prudence Dear, we have the dulcetly toned and fully-fledged GP, yes. Dr. Sonia. Good morning. Good morning. Lovely to be back. And I just had some time with chickens myself at a lovely cafe in Mooney Ponds called Brother Hen. They've got four oh. um, uh, chickens there, and I'm always amazed at the different colours that chickens have oh, on their head and their bodies but in any case <laughs> good morning <laughs> I don't, i'm obviously way behind something here aren't i yeah i, I think so i don't do chickens at all <laughs> you do chickens in in a melbourne can you do that i don't know what the rules are but i i spec backyard chickens i'm sure some people have got them looks yeah. like you can well, well, i'll have to I'll look see. into it 
Uh, and Dr. Sonner, who have you got coming in for us today? Yeah, I've got a wonderful um, clinical expert and real advocate for women's health, Dr. Nisha Cott, coming in um, over the phone later to talk about the uh, Senate inquiry into women's pain. So that's a really um, optimistic thing that's happening, and I'm looking forward to speaking with her. Such an interesting question. I mean, the idea that you need a Senate inquiry into a specific medical symptom at one level seems extraordinary. It's interesting, isn't it? And I think they've really identified a need for that. And that's what, as a GP um, and a, a woman GP, I'm so pleased that the government's paying attention to that. Okay, well, we'll find out more about that later on the show. So listen in on that one. Fantastic. And um, we do love to hear from the listeners. Prudence? Oh, we do. We've got a text line which is just for your comments and feedback. And it's 0466 98 1027. That's it. 4 We do love hearing from you, so get those nimble thumbs at work. Oh, and now one of my favourite parts of the show. Oh, yes, it's the dog part sting here on 3 Triple R. I love this bit because we get to meet all these puppies in the park. And uh, yesterday in the park in Richmond, there was this gorgeous, fluffy little ball running around. So excited to meet everyone. Herzl! who was a Labradoodle, four months old. My favourite. What is it with puppies? I mean, if you needed a template for unfettered joy... Wouldn't you use them? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, totally. therapy dogs. Thera- yep. I mean, <laughs> Everyone needs one. Just, just, so, just the joy it brings to everyone watching these little creatures and Herzl was just charging around saying hello to every dog doing that thing a good puppy should do if it was a bit oh I'll just roll over and say no I'm just here I'm just a puppy Um, just the most delightful Mm. creature Um, there with mum and dad Jamie and Mick it was lovely to meet you in the park yesterday and we look forward to a meeting you in the park lots more often b having you as rusted on listeners to three triple r so with the dog park shout-outs done, we now go to the more serious stuff. <clears throat> Pardon me, I've got a fog in my throat. Of some news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No yeah, it's six minutes past ten with a frog in his throat. We've got a bad case of loving you. Bad throat, bad, bad case of slightly froggy throat. But I'm going to turn to you, Dr. Sonia. What's, what's in the news this week that your interest. Yeah, well, something really interesting coming out from the George Institute for Global Health in the UK. They're calling for a recommendation for a salt alternative, a salt substitute to try and reduce the impact of all the salt that uh, globally is in our diet and how that's contributing to high blood pressure. So salt's a really interesting question, isn't it? It's a question that's been asked ever since I was a medical student. I actually remember a mate of mine who I was a student with who got a grant to go and study salt all around the world and spent millions of pounds going around investigating salt and its role in hypertension. And he came back and saying, it probably has a role. Uh, which is kind of where we've been before. But what's the new thing about salt? So, I mean, the new thing, I guess to talk about the new thing, we'll just briefly talk about the old thing, which is that salt is sodium chloride. And you'd remember from um, med school and even um, high school biology that through osmosis, um, eating salt or eating sodium draws water into the blood vessels. And that process of osmosis raises your blood pressure. But sodium also signals to the kidneys to retain water, retain salt, and it's sort of a, um, a cyclical process. But the salt substitute is a a potassium enriched salt, which means that it would be 75% 
sodium chloride, the old one, and 25% potassium chloride, which doesn't have the same effects on your blood pressure, but also signals for the kidneys to release water and reduce your blood pressure. So that's really interesting. So when I first read this, I thought, that's not much of a reduction, is it? You've still got three quarters of it old-fashioned sodium salt and just a little bit of extra potassium. Why would that make too much difference? But then I had a look at the study, which they did on 21,000 people for five years. That's a decent old study. Now, these were people who are older, they were at high risk, they'd had strokes or high blood pressure or whatever. But it did show reduction in blood pressure, reduction in strokes, reduction in heart problems, reduction in death pretty good just from a little change in what you're shaking on your food. Well, it's all about the numbers, isn't it? If we look at the global burden of disease, those numbers start to look more positive. But when you say shaking on your food, I guess as a GP, I'm always thinking practically, what can I tell my patients that's going to impact their lives? And I guess my question about this article is, really, it's not the culprit's not really the salt shaker in our pantry. The three quarters of our salt intake comes from the processed foods, the, um, you know, salts and cheese and all the wonderful things and so really asking people to change their salt in their pantry I don't know if that's going to make a big difference so we should be giving out the chippies is that what you're saying I think we need potassium salt enriched chips (laughs) (laughs) and also prudence well yes I suppose um uh, look, I mean, obviously, fast foods mm. seem to be high in salt, amongst other things, and we know highly processed foods. So it's those industries, presumably, that we need to be kind of Absolutely. encouraging to take up that. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, it was said when, when I was a young doctor that to make a difference to your blood pressure, you had to reduce the salt in your diet so much it didn't make you live longer, it just made it seem longer. Because the food was so horrible, life was barely worth living any further. I think that's an extreme example. But uh, um, I think what this study is telling us is that you don't have to go to that extreme. I mean, I knew people back in the 80s who were doing that, removing all salt from their Mm. diet. And you go around for dinner and come away going, give me a Maccas. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. They've said that this potassium-enriched salt tastes a bit bitter. So it's that the taste profile is off-putting. But at the same time, our palates can change reasonably quickly, can't they? I grew up with... Um, margarine only and now I've developed a taste for butter so hopefully we could go the other way around. Well it has been shown that your salt palate changes quite quickly quite right after two or three weeks you develop a taste for the new level of salt whether higher or lower. Um, Sorry yes Britain. Yeah I was just wondering you know we solve one problem do we create another so we're substituting potassium for sodium is there a long-term health consequence or risk there especially for people who take lots of salt? Oh my goodness you're good yes and, and I guess this is where you get the sort of doctory warning bit because there are people on certain medications there's a thing called spironolactone which preserves your potassium and if you add more it might be bad for you so if you're going to change over to one of these and it's, it's called heart salt and you can buy them in the major supermarket oh really yeah heart salt which has this 25% potassium mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of the same price as a fancy rock salt so it's not cheap but it's also quite affordable on par with the Himalayan pink salt then that, that <laughs> like we love to have in our pantry is have it have you been poking a nose on the second shelf of my pantry. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, quite seriously, there are people who should be cautious about adding extra potassium to their diet. So if you're not sure, do check it out with your doctor. But for otherwise healthy people, great question, Prudence. But as far as I know, as far as the studies show, uh, adding a bit of potassium is healthy. It's good for your Mm -hmm. blood pressure. It reduces risks of things like heart attack and stroke uh, and no downside. So why wouldn't you do it? I'm going to rush out and buy some. 
replace you, that Himalayan uh, pink salt. That'll be a tough sell for so, a Melbourneian. <laughs> so we got you convinced, have we, Dr. Sonia? I'm definitely interested, particularly for people who have hypertension and who are looking to reduce their salt intake, for sure. Well, there you go. You heard it first on 3RRR, how to save your life by just changing a little bit of salt. Rush out and get some heart salt. It's 11 minutes past 10, and we'll be back in just a minute with the amazing um, Matt Norman. Stay on, stay on that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Yeah, it's 30 minutes past, uh, what is it, 30 minutes past 10 yeah, here on 10. 3 Triple R. <laughs> I've just been on holiday. I don't know what time it is. Um, and we just had, we had a wonderful text from Fiona tell, telling me that indeed you can get chickens and you just have to go to your local council and find out how many chickens you're allowed. So oh, that's oh, very fantastic. exciting. So I can't wait to find out how many chickens I'm allowed in Richmond area. <laughs> um, but uh, Prudence, would you like to introduce Matt Norman? Yes, my words to everybody who's listening. Um, so Matt Norman is a filmmaker, a producer, a director, a screenwriter, lives um, in Ballarat and uh, the sort of topic of our conversation today is over the last few years in particular there have been a number of very tragic, very sad events involving teenagers taking their own lives and um, you know, I think some, sometimes this doesn't, nobody knows anything about it or hears anything about it. So I'd like to sort of welcome Matt Norman. Um, Matt, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's, it's great to be able to talk to you. So um, you ha- have been making a film and um, that's about some of these local events. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us, um, you know, a bit more about that and how you decided to make a film on this very sensitive topic. Yeah, um, in, uh, at the start of 2023, I, I was reading a local newspaper in Ballarat and I saw the news of a, a young man who was um, 15, Nick Watts his name was, and, um, and he took his life. And, and what was really tragic apart from that was two weeks later his girlfriend did the same thing and she was uh, 14. So um, that got me doing a little bit more research in my local area, and I realised that six other children of that age had also taken their life, which was horrendous. That's really, really sad, isn't it? I just like it's, it's almost it's stunning, in fact. Yeah, yeah it's it's it, it's really crazy that um, in in a, such a small town that we've got so many kids that are doing this sort of thing. So my concern was, if this is happening here, what's it what's it like around the rest of Australia? Mm. So did you get into contact with sort of people involved, families and so on? Yeah, so I've been, yeah, I've been very proactive in, in actually contacting the families of these kids and, and they've been remarkable human mm-hmm. beings to actually talk to me, number one, but also give me really hard details on exactly what happened and, and how it happened and what their kids were like and things like that. So it's been a really hard sort of time to research this sort of topic, but... But the families were so incredibly inspiring to me that, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they all really wanted this film to be made when I let them know that, you know, the whole idea is to actually bring this subject to life and, and let people know about what's actually going on with our kids. So they've fully backed it, which has been fantastic. Oh, that's so important. And I mean, I guess, yes, it gives them a sense that actually somebody is paying attention, somebody's listening to their plight. Um, yeah, 
Now, um, I mean, in terms of the film, then you've um, you've got a cast of actually also very young people, and I suppose I was thinking it's not unusual in filmmaking for you know twenty seven year olds to play sixteen year olds and things like that. But you've actually yep. engaged a cast of sort of a similar ages to to those involved in the the original incidents. Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been really lucky in the casting. I've got people like Robert Morgan, who was in Brad Pitt's last film, and Steve Lamaquand, and Tipper Grandison from Muriel's Wedding. And but I needed they're the adult cast, but I yeah. needed a young cast to actually do this. And and so what I did was I put auditions out for Ballarat kids, um, for local kids, and most of these kids know um, the, the children that have actually um, uh, taken their lives. So. I wanted them to to be part of this project because number one, it's a, it's very dialogue heavy. So I wanted to spend time with them in Ballarat mm-hmm. um, to rehearse for the rest of the year. Um, that was first and foremost. But secondly, I wanted kids that knew people um, that um, have actually done this, so that we could actually bring them together, so that they could tell their story in a way. That's fantastic. I mean, we do, I think, have a focus these days, especially in mental health, on understanding problems through lived experience. And, you know, so people are much more in contact. So this is not simply a film where people are acting. They actually understand um, the issues and the the context in many cases. Um, What's the title of the film, Norman? So so that's all right. So the (laughs) film's called called Piggy. And it's based on the, the nursery rhyme, um, um, this little piggy went to market, this little piggy mm-hmm. stayed home, this little piggy had roast paper. And what, what we've done is we've taken that and made it into a much more devious rhyme. And then the kids at the school, because it's all about a, a, a drama teacher who teaches them how to um, reenact this um, nursery rhyme mm-hmm. in a drama class and then put it on at the end of the year. So um, it's a it's a really interesting subject, and we've we've made the three little oh, sorry the five little piggies rhyme uh, turn into quite a devastating uh, play about bullying and things like that. So that you know the whole the whole film is about um, bullying at school and mm-hmm. what kids are going through in this day and age. So that's that's what we've called it, Piggy. Um, Matt, it's Doctor Nick here. Um, it sounds absolutely fantastic, and I will certainly be having a look. Um, I just want to ask, though, it was always traditionally something that we weren't meant to talk about in the media. We certainly weren't meant to make films about suicide. We weren't meant to do stories about it. That, of course, has changed. But can I just ask you, how have you dealt with that conundrum? Yeah, so I've I've done the right side of things. So I've gone and established good friendships with um, suicide prevention networks, with uh, an organisation called Mindscape, um, who usually the media have to go through when they talk about these sorts of issues and and made them fully aware of what we're doing. I've also spoken to the parents and let the parents actually read the script um, because I wanted to make sure that they were 100% behind it. Um, and, and that was an important part. But there's this place called Mindscape that literally you go through and they read the script and then they sort of... So not dictate, but they sort of tell you which way is a good way and which way is a bad way of, as of sort of talking about this. And one of the things that I've found over the time is that, you know, the, the word suicide is not being used very often, which I thought was unbelievable because, 
you know, these kids need to start using that word so that they can start relating to it and then talking about it within within their peer groups and their teachers and things like that. So there was a real learning curve on how to deal with um, such a subject. So I've had uh, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of really good people. It's a, it's a fantastic point, Matt, and thanks so much for making that. This is a subject which is very, very close to me because my own sister took her own life suicided as you say let's use that word uh, just in the middle of last year I, I just want to ask did you get any pushback from people did anyone say you can't do this or were any of the families yeah. unhappy none of the families all the families I, I had a lot of tears and a lot of crying over the phone when i spoke to a, a dozen or so families they they were incredible they were they were 100 percent behind this they even people that had um even families that had lost their child within months were over over ecstatic about us doing something about this sort of subject did i get pushback absolutely i got pushback from people that i didn't think i was going to get pushback from and um and but that seems to have sort of uh slowed down now that i've had so much support from other groups oh come on but tell yeah, us who those the, people were <laughs> who's well, giving the pushback come on well I, I i i should say it's um oh what what are they i forget what they're called now um uh headspace okay yeah, interesting. So, yeah, look, I mean, I think, again, yeah. there's this whole sort of issue around safety and, you know, how do we have safe conversations about uh, suicide and actually use that word? There's so much stigma attached to this. I know Dr. Sonia oh, would like to ask you something here, Matt. Yeah, yeah, Do- Dr. Sonia here, Matt. Um, incredible work that you're talking about. And I think you're really what you sh- what's um, sort of bringing up for me as a GP is, and I guess this whole discussion is that... Um, if it's not talked about, it's terrifying. There's stigma, there's shame, and that's compounded by not not using the words. And um, bef- you know, earlier on, we we used to think as um, medical practitioners that you couldn't ask about it because asking about it would encourage. Uh, people to do it or would give children ideas but actually what we know is that asking about it is incredibly important to um, not normalize it because it's not normal but it is common and something that's common and serious there's help out there and um, I just really commend the work that you're doing. Thank you and let me just say too that um, from the very beginning we brought on a company um, a charity called Hand in Hand in Ballarat now, they're, they're actually promoting going into schools and talking about these subject matter. And they're, they're um, part of Guy Sebastian's parachute program. So um, Guy Sebastian's sort of part of this whole thing, and they've sponsored us um, because their job is to go into local primary schools and also high schools and actually use these big words like suicide so that young kids can start talking about it. Now, I... I know that seems to be the only thing I've heard of. I think Dolly's Dream is another one um, who I've been in contact with as well, and and they're using the word, which I really, really implore because um, using the word is so important so that kids can actually hear it because one of the things that I've found is it's, it's not the suicide itself. It's the devastation of the families and the young kids, like brothers and sisters of these kids that have passed away, that there's that's where the massive damage is and um it, you know these uh, places like hand in hand in ballarat and also the parachute program with guy sebastian that's what they're out there doing is talking about these things 
Yeah, thanks, Matt. I mean, I, I, I work in suicide prevention some of my time and I do work a lot with people who are bereaved through suicide. So um, on a regular basis, you know, I see the sort of exactly that devastation. Um, and I mean, there are, yes, there are a number of initiatives around um, educating people about how to talk safely, how to talk to relatives who they may be concerned about um, and how to perhaps to help make them safe. Um, I'd just like to go back to your young cast again because, I mean, that, that is perhaps another thing. Here they are um, working through a script, having to perform, having to talk about these topics and really kind of relive things. Um, uh, how did you make sure that they're, they're safe and, and uh, protected through this whole process? Well, I'm going to put you on the spot, actually, because you're actually local. You're actually local to me, so my 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 objective was to actually grab you at the right time and actually have you come in and talk to these kids, because um, I think it's it's people like you that understand it, mm. and you know I'd rather a professional come in and talk to these kids, um, because you know I can talk to them as much as I like, and I can I can get them to meet the parents and things like that, but um, I do want a professional on set. Um, to actually, de- or especially during the rehearsal process later on in the year, that yeah. um, comes in and talks for these kids. So I've got your number. You have, haven't you? I know Escape, and I'm yeah. just down the road. So, <laughs> that's but again, yeah. you know, that's so important that we do engage the right people and the right organisations yeah. to give us all the advice and support because obviously, you know, we care about our kids so much. Um, yeah. Okay, so I mean, it's a here. Here is this film. It's not a documentary. It's this kind of you know, quite kind of complex. I think um, storyline. Who's the audience, Matt? Who are you aiming this for? Who do you want to see this? So the people we want to see it are high school kids, um, high school kids and parents especially. So mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I've got um, kids. Uh, I've got one child that's in year twelve. And I've had long discussions about people that he knows that um, have taken their life. And, and he, you know, he's one of those people that actually wants to talk about it. And all his friends want to talk about it. So um, it's, it's really going to be aimed at a young audience. And um, even though we don't actually show uh, a suicide in the film, it's implied um, mm-hmm. that this has happened and this is a devastation that everyone now has to cope with. So um, adult, adults of teenagers would be our best demographic and also teenagers, teen, teenagers themselves. Fantastic. Yeah, well, look, I'm very glad as well to hear that you don't actually depict a, a suicide. I think that's one of our... When we were talking earlier about how do we handle these, um, uh, you know, these very sensitive topics, uh, I think one of our key rules was, you know, we don't talk about specifics of methods or locations so that, that uh, yeah. we kind of keep that behind the scene. But that method and location we do need to know is where can people see this movie? Well, exactly, and when. Yeah, so we're shooting at the end of this year. We're, we're just waiting on a very, very big actor to say yes, hopefully. Um, and so we're just getting him involved, who will play the lead as the, the drama teacher. And, um, and so if he says yes, then we'll be shooting at the end of this year and then we'll have it out next year. That sounds fantastic. We're all going to be very keen to uh, we'll keep an eye on things. Obviously, I think you and I will stay in t- touch, Matt. To uh, Definitely. To, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really fascinating, and I wish you all the very best with the fantastic work that you're doing. And can I just say one yeah. thing? It's it, The one thing that I, I, I wanted to say, is number one, you can go and check us out at piggysong.com. But yes. I think the most important thing here is you. Um, the, the what... what 
you're doing is um, we're in the media here and you're you're actually saying something about the word suicide. So mm. it's actually people like you that's actually getting the topic talked about. And, and that's something that I'm really proud of. When I hear people like yourselves that actually do want to talk about this story and do want to talk about the word... Um, so that we can normalise it a little bit. So congratulations for you guys. Well, thank you for your support as well. Okay. (laughs) All the best, Matt. Thank you. Thank Um, you all. For those of you listening, if you have got concerns about yourself or others and you need to talk to somebody, um, there are helplines, of course. There's Lifeline 13 11 14. Lifeline 13 11 14. If you're LGBTIQA+, there's QLife, which is 1-800-184-527. 1-800-184-527. And uh, 24-hour... 24-7 counselling available through Beyond Blue on 1300 46 36. Yeah, very important. Thank you. That was fantastic. And um, I think it was piggyfilm.com if people Piggy, want. Yeah, piggyfilm.com. It's, quite, it's a good website. It's got yeah. all sorts of things on yeah, there. So check have it a look. out. Yeah. It's got the cast on there. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Yeah, it's 25 to 11 here on 3 RRR. I'm in the studio. Dr Nick, we've got Prudence Steer, we've got Dr Sonia. And Dr Sonia, who have we got as our next very special guest? Yeah, we've got a wonderful guest today to talk about uh, something that I've learned recently. We've heard about the gender pay gap, but I've learned recently about the gender pain gap. Yeah, so the Victorian government recently released the results of a women's health survey of 100 1,000, sorry, 1,700 women and found that one in three women reported insensitive and disrespectful health practitioners, leaving them feeling dismissed and unheard. And one in 10 felt their health practitioners didn't know enough about women's health to provide high quality care. And as a result of this, the Victorian government's announced a Senate inquiry into women's pain. And I'm so pleased that for our conversation this morning, I'm introducing Dr. Nisha Cott, who's a passionate advocate for sexual and reproductive rights of women and for equitable access to healthcare and health literacy for migrant and refugee women. She's the Clinical Director of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at Peninsula Health in Melbourne, Vice President of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists and the Chair of the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health in Melbourne. Dr Cott, welcome to Radiotherapy. Thank you for having me, Sonia. So for those who might not know, a Senate inquiry is when the government looks into a specific issue and takes submissions from the public. And this can be anyone from experts in the field to everyday people with lived experience and presents those results back to the state health minister to change laws, policies and practices to improve people's lives. So, Dr. Cott, why is the Victorian government examining women's pain so closely at the moment? Well, uh, the Victorian government started out, like you said, by running a survey, and the results of the survey have informed us of how women's pain isn't treated the way uh, pain for other genders, for men, is treated. And so that has prompted this inquiry. It's not something that we haven't known about, so it's not as if uh, it's a new discovery. We've always known this, but it's good to have information from Victorian women to guide how we base our inquiry. And it's important to also think about the fact that we're not just talking about pain related to our organs. We're not talking about pain related to periods 
or we're not talking only about pain related to periods or uterus or ovaries we're also looking at pain related to other organs because we know that women experience for example pain from a heart attack very differently from how men experience it and we know that Uh, there has been a lack of research into women's pain so all of this put together is the reason for having an inquiry so that we hear from women we hear from healthcare practitioners and then we can provide some recommendations that will improve women's access to care the model of care that we provide so that we can tackle women's pain more effectively in the future that's a really important point um i think often women's health and women's pain does get reduced to pelvic pain and and sort of female specific organs and it's really important as you say to think about women's pain more holistically but y- you and I both know that no one goes to medical school hoping to be a doctor one day only to make their patients feel dismissed and unheard and i've i've certainly had patients who've told me they've gone around and around in circles trying to get answers for their pain that that they can't get so what's going on here why is women's pain not being taken seriously by health professionals so i think women suffer not only from that pain gap but also what i would call a credibility gap so women are not believed on the one hand uh, women are meant or you know there's this traditional stereotype of women being more emotional when they're in pain and so often that pain gets put down to things other than actually uh, physical condition women are more likely to be told oh go see a physiotherapist or go see a mental health practitioner rather than actually let's look for the cause of your pain on the other hand we also lose out because it's considered that women's pain is more natural and normal because having pain with menstruation having pain with childbirth is considered what i would say quote unquote normal whereas actually pain is just pain and we should be looking at pain the way we look at any pain for anyone in the same way Yeah, and we know as well that the pain gap is widened for women of color. There's a, a terrible study we learn about in medical school. I, I'm not sure if you would have learned about this, Dr. Nick, where American medical students were more likely to think that black patients had higher pain thresholds than white patients. And black and white's the terminology they use in America. We're obviously very different to America here in Australia, but Dr. Cot, how do you think the gendered pain gap impacts women from marginalized communities differently in Australia? So like you said Sonia that you know yes there is this perception that women of color have a higher pain threshold but that is also countered by a perception that women of color complain about every little thing which is you know it just doesn't make any sense we can't do both right <laughs> it's a, it's it's a conundrum isn't it so we complaining too much or too little or too high or too low thresholds it's a bit of a a catch 22 absolutely yeah, absolutely yeah. dr cote dr nick here one of the things i came across is um, that this goes all the way back to medical research as well it's not just clinical practice it's it also comes back to our research practices um and that uh, scientists prefer to use male laboratory rats because those pesky hormones in female rats um, make a muck, muck up all their results and so they only do their research on male rats and so we only get um results that suit the blokes um, is this something which you've come across being uh, something that prejudices women's experience yes definitely so you know not only is it that we use the male as the stereotype and then women are just meant to be men with a uterus and breast which is completely wrong 
But we also tend to have research that is based very much in our majority population. So, you know, when you look at research studies, most of them, for example, in Australia, will say that this person needs to be English speaking. So then we are missing out on looking at how things might be different for a whole group of people who might not speak English, which means that they come from marginalized communities, they may be women of color, they may be, you know, women who don't speak English because of their refugee or immigrant background. So we miss out on all that research. Plus, women's health research doesn't get funded as much as it should be. Yeah, we, we had a, um, an interesting show uh, several months ago now about chronic pain and I worked in a refugee and migrant clinic for six months and um, I felt so limited by the terminology I've been taught to ask about pain. As soon as you start treating uh, patients of different cultures, you realise that language and culture, it all shapes our experience of pain and the way we've been taught about pain is very narrow for the wider pain experience. And so, as you say, I think the the voices of refugee and migrant women will be critical in this inquiry to actually enable health professionals to improve the situation, improve the problem. That is so true, Sonia. And, you know, language isn't just about speaking a language. I speak English very well, and so do many migrant and refugee women. But it's not just that you speak a language. It's the words you use to describe your pain. And they differ, like you said, based on your cultural experience, based on your sociological experience. And you might not have the words to describe the pain that you're feeling in a language that isn't your first language. Um, Dr. Koch, to our ever-vigilant listeners, uh, someone has just texted in saying, please, please, please ask the doctor about menopause and the symptoms and pain associated with that. It's not taught in the curriculum, it's often ignored, and we don't get enough attention focusing on the problems for women in menopause. Would you like to comment on that? Yes, I think it is very important for us to acknowledge as healthcare professionals, as doctors, that we don't get enough education around specific issues that affect women's health. And it is up to us, it is our responsibility to make sure that we gain that education. It may not have been in our medical school curriculum, but nothing's stopping us from learning about it. We are meant to be lifelong learners. It's only when once we educate ourselves that we can then support women who come to us with symptoms that we may not have learnt in medical school. And we advocate with government and policymakers for more research, more funding and more understanding of women's health issues. Oh, Dr. Nisha, it's uh, Prudence here. Um, I'm just thinking... Um I mean, over the decades, there are more and more women clinicians, more women doctors. Is this making a difference or is it like it's all based around training and so on as to what as to how how clinicians interact with their with their patients? I think what makes the biggest difference is the power of the collective. So, yes, there are more women doctors, and that does make a difference. But we also have to think about how there are more women politicians. There are more women in leadership positions. There are more women who have the ability to advocate. There are more women's health organizations and support groups. And the collective effect is that women's health issues are no longer being pushed into a corner and treated as a niche kind of place. 
Yes, something I find, um, Dr. Cott, uh, with my younger patients particularly, is the incredible fear of pain during the uh, insertion of IUDs like the Mirena. And it scares so many women away from what is an excellent contraceptive method, even more effective than getting your tubes tied, and a treatment for heavy periods as well. And if I may be personal for a second, when I was a medical student, I had Mirena inserted under sedation because I was um, myself terrified of, of the pain and my patients now tell me they've watched you know these horrendous videos on TikTok about doctors ignoring women's pain but your hospitals pioneered the implementation of the green penthrox whistle as an inhaled pain relief option for the insertion of IUDs which I believe is a first for a public hospital clinic? That's right Sonia it is the first for a public hospital in Victoria and again, this was part of just listening to women. Now, it's very important to acknowledge that for some women, this will not be a painful procedure, but it will be painful for some women. And this traditional uh, kind of, again, stereotype that we have, if you've had babies, it will not be painful. If you've not had a baby, it might be painful. That may well be true for you know, maybe 50%, 60% of women, but it's not true for everyone. And I think we have traditionally gone with this presumption that it won't be painful and then discovered that when it is painful for women, just carried on with the procedure. Whereas the better thing would be to actually come from a place of this could be painful. How can we try and minimize that pain? What can we do to make sure that this is not uncomfortable for you? For so many women, this is their first time they're having an IUD. If they have a bad experience the first time, they're not going to come back for another one. They're going to tell their friends and family the word spreads and the fear spreads. And so let's go from a place of actually saying, here's something that can provide pain relief. It's safe. It's quick. If you need it, it's here. If you don't need it, that's absolutely fine too. And is it popular? Are, are, are lots of women taking up that option in the clinic um, at your hospital with the inhaled uh, green whistle? I would say lots of women who fear the IUD are definitely mm. taking up this option. So for some women who have had an IUD previously and have not found it painful, that's, you know, fine. They, they are the ones who will say, no, I, I'll be okay. But it's for women who come to see us who already have this fear of the pain, they are much more likely to say, okay, I'll try this. Let's see how we go. So how do we know who's going to get pain and who isn't? I mean, why wouldn't you just give the green whistle to everybody? I mean, if, do Absolutely. we know in advance who's going to find this an unpleasant experience? Not at all. And that, that's exactly what I'm saying. We should go with, from a place of this could be painful for everybody. Let's give everybody the green whistle. They don't have to use it. They might just hold it in their hand and not need to use it. But let's go with offering it to everyone. And, oh, okay, I, um, Dr. Nisha, I do wonder as well, actually, on, following on from that, you know, the, 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 the idea that the solution to pain is medication, and I'm just wondering as well whether you know, we need a better understanding of the kind of anticipation of pain and how that might impact somebody, and if we had maybe, maybe a bit more time with, with patients, we could get them, what, to, to relax, to like, meditate? Can we just give them all drugs? What's the matter yeah, with you? you know, we could save some money and take away the risks. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about the psychological side of things that from overall we know that certain um certain sort of approaches from a psychology like like you know um, mindfulness stress based you know, mindfulness stress reduction um can actually reduce people's intake of of painkillers when they have chronic pain for example and i'm just wondering 
would that also be something that could be considered around pain management or needs to be considered more frequently around pain management? Yes, definitely. So again, what we have done is that we have treated pain with painkillers, whereas actually pain is a very complex thing. Chronic pain is a really complex issue and it needs to be multidisciplinary. It needs to involve all the different disciplines in medicine and allied health to actually make sure that the patient at the center, the woman at the center gets all the help that she can. And there is definitely place for mindfulness, place for physiotherapy, place for mental health is support. All of those have a place. But it has to come from, first of all, believing the woman when she says she's in pain and then involving colleagues and creating systems where multidisciplinary care is easily available and not fragmented. Dr. Codd, it sounds like you place listening to women really at the centre of your approach. And I'm just wondering, uh, as a GP, in, in what other ways do you think we as doctors, you've mentioned a few there, what other practical ways can we as doctors do better to address women's pain when they come and see us? Like I said, Sonia, first of all, educating ourselves and going with an open mind, with a mindset of I'm going to believe the woman who comes to me and says she's in pain. There is so much that we don't learn as doctors within our curriculum. You know, things like mindfulness and physiotherapy are unknowns to us, let's be honest. And sitting in in clinics with my colleagues who practice in physiotherapy or mental health or mindfulness has been such a great learning experience for me. And I think if we did more of that, as part of our routine practice, we will understand the strengths of our colleagues. We will understand the value of what they bring to the women at the centre of all the care and be able to provide better care. Dr. Koch, I mean, I absolutely love hearing what you say, but one of the things I hear a lot of the times in medicine is this um, talk about uh, allied health and the broad biopsychosocial model and that sort of thing. And uh, one slightly cynical version of it would be every woman having an IUD is going to have a physio, a psychologist, a pain management specialist and a therapy dog in the room all at the same time to help them get through. Whereas in real life, we know these things just don't happen. Uh, I mean, practically, if we're saying that we've got women with this severe pain, we can't get them all um, psychology and physiotherapy and all the other excellent sounding uh, interventions that you're talking about. How do we do this in real life? So I think it's really important to make the difference between acute pain and chronic pain. So of course, having an IUD inserted is an acute situation which requires a different set of management principles. And for people who are living with chronic pain, we need to have a different set of principles. I'm hoping that what comes out of this inquiry is that actually we don't fund chronic pain management well. We don't have multidisciplinary teams available for women who have been living with chronic pain and that we actually set these up so that we can provide the care. In the long run, this is much better because women who have better control of their chronic pain will be productive members of our society. And so the investment is a good investment. And one of the diseases that um, is a huge issue for women with pain is endometriosis. Do you want to just touch on that specifically for a little bit? Yes, I will touch on that, but I also want to say that not all chronic pelvic pain is endometriosis and not all endometriosis causes chronic pelvic pain. Again, what this tells us is that there is a lack of research into the exact relationship between endometriosis and pelvic pain and an exact association between the 
percent or severity of endometriosis and severity of pelvic pain. So yes, we need to do the research first of all. Traditionally, the way to diagnose endometriosis has been to have surgery, to have a keyhole surgery, have a laparoscope put into your tummy, have a look and identify, look at it and say, yes, this looks like endometriosis. Now, again, we need to move away from that and be able to diagnose endometriosis based on an ultrasound scan or a blood test. We do have the expertise to do the ultrasound scans, but there are very few people with that expertise. So we need to grow that for your workforce of being able to diagnose it based on ultrasound scan. And we need research to find those blood tests that will make it easier to diagnose endometriosis. So that's where the gaps in knowledge are, and we need to fill those gaps. I think it's clear from the Women's Health Survey results and also from our conversation today that many of our listeners may have had experiences where they felt that their pain was not taken seriously by doctors. And We've talked about what we doctors and health professionals can think about. Dr. Cott, what advice would you have for our patients, our listeners, who might be struggling with pain and struggling to be heard? So if you are struggling to be heard, some of the tips that I have are that talk to your doctor, your healthcare practitioner about how the pain is affecting your routine life in your day-to-day life. So that then you are actually telling the person about your ability to be able to live a normal life. For my generation, it is keeping a diary of your pain symptoms and what else is happening in your life at the same time and bringing it along to the consultation room. I'm sure there are the newer generations who are much more tech savvy and will be able to have an app or something smart in which they can record this. Take a family member or a friend you trust to advocate for you, especially if you feel you are not being heard, that having a support person who can you know, I don't know, attest to how much your life is affected by the pain will help. And if you feel comfortable, then raise the issue of bias in pain. You know, tell your practitioner, maybe your practitioner hasn't heard of gender pain gap. So you have the opportunity to educate your practitioner. Let them know that something like that exists. Find out from them how they are going to help you what referrals are possible, what investigations are possible, when they're going to be done, what sort of a timeline you're looking at. And ultimately, it's also important to acknowledge that if you are not getting the help you need from the healthcare practitioner you are seeing, maybe there is an opportunity to look for a different health practitioner. There is now a plan to set up one-stop women's clinics where you can go and see a GP, a specialist, and you know other health practitioners within the same clinic. Accessing a one-stop clinic might be the answer if you're not getting heard at your local service. Yeah, that, that, that's fabulous. Thank you so much for that. And as a GP who hears stories of pain, maybe every week even in my clinic room, I'd really encourage women in Victoria who might be listening and have lived experience of pain to consider making a submission um, by the end of March to the inquiry. Listeners can go to health.vic.gov.au and search inquiry into women's pain. And it's really important, I think, that our government hears your voices and your stories. And these submissions, as we've said, will hopefully form the basis for improved care for women in the future. Dr. Cott, it's been such a fabulous conversation with you. I myself have learned so much. Um, I hope we can speak again in future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Sonia.
But that was the absolutely glorious Dr. Nisha Cott, and I look forward to having a patient of mine come in and tell me that I should be paying more attention to her pain. I, mean, I, would, I would welcome that if, if that's something which I've been missing. And by the sound of it, it's entirely probably I have. A couple of texters, so I texted in, took my teenage daughter with pelvic pain. They just said antidepressants. <clears throat> yes, and uh, lots of appropriate emojis. That Someone else asked about what was this salt we were talking about. Um, uh, one of them was, uh, I'm making a recommendation, Baja, B-A-J-A, gold sea salt or something like that. Uh, but we're talking about heart salt because that has 25% potassium and may have some advantages. It's time for us to wrap up. Just time to say thank you to our fabulous guests, filmmaker Matt Norm, Norman and Dr. Nisha Cott and the Dr. <laughs> Dr. Nick Team Prudence, dear, and Dr. Sonia, it's time to hand over to those fabulous scientists at Einstein a Go-Go. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.